One of my seminary professors tells a story, and he, and he tells it like this. He says, uh, I was walking home from work one day, and I was crossing over the bridge, and I saw a man had climbed over the rail and was getting ready to jump. And so he, he runs over, and he just is like, hey, man, you okay? And the man confirms that he is not doing okay. And so just first thing he can think of, he says, do you believe in God? And the guy says, yes, I do. Um, so he's talking to me, so I just go with it. And I say, I'm a Christian. Me too, says the guy. And I'm, wow, man, that, that is so cool to hear. Um, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. And the guy's like, Protestant. It's like, same, same here, same here. Uh, I'm evangelical, he says. And uh, the guy's like, the guy's getting ready to jump. Is, you know, okay, me too. So I've crossed the barrier at this point you know, getting closer, just trying to keep him talking. And, and he says, I'm, uh, I'm Baptist. How, how about yourself? And the guy says, yeah, yeah, me too. And I'm like, wow, you know, I mean, we are so much alike. I think God has me on this bridge with you for a reason. A, a Southern Baptist, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, Association of Regular Baptist Churches, Free Will Baptist. Uh, and the guy's like, Southern Baptist. And it's like, whoa, the coincidences just keep piling up. And I'm shocked, and so I'm like, this is spooky. Uh, what about your end times eschatology? Postmillennial, premillennial, amillennial? Uh, guys like, premillennial? Uh, and like, that's amazing, me too. Historic premillennial, dispensational premillennial. Uh, guys like, and the coincidence of all of this is finally starting to dawn on him. And so, and he's, he's, he's actually looking at me now and he takes a step back from the edge and it's like I'm getting to him. And he's like, I'm dispensational millennial. Me too. And, and it's like, okay, well, I mean, how about as far as the rapture and the tribulation go? Are you post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib? And the, and the guy reaches his hand out to me and is like, mid-trib. And I say, die, heretic. And I push him off myself. <laughs> That is how Dr. Kuykendall tells it. If look into any suspicious suicides in the town of Vancouver, Washington. Uh, <laughs> what is worth fighting over? That's, that's our question sort of for today. What is worth fighting over? What's worthy of courting conflict between ostensible believers for? Um, and this is an issue in which personality comes into play strongly. Um, because we all know people um, who, and some of you may be these people, um, when you ask them what's worth fighting for, the answer is everything. All the things, all the time. There is no hill I have ever found that is not worth dying on. Um, right? <laughs> In the best possible way. No. There were four fingers pointing back at me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I mean, but, but everyone's different. And, and then on the other side, there are the folks that are in the nothing is worth fighting for crowd. Uh, the can't we all just get along bunch. Uh, and there are ignoble and there are noble motivations on either side of that spectrum. And there are people all between both sides of that spectrum. Uh, there are personal convictions in play. There are deep-seated traumas in play. There are formative experiences in play when it comes down to whether someone is just on where they're at on that sliding scale of fight or flight. 
Um, but I think the one thing that anyone could agree on, uh, wherever we are on that scale, is that there is a cost associated with fighting. There is a cost to fighting. There is a cost to not fighting. Um, whether it's a social cost, a monetary cost, a physical cost, at some point the bill will come due, at whatever that bill might be. So what then is worth fighting over? So today I want to share with you a small New Testament letter. Uh, it's the book of Jude. It's a short one, 25 verses. It's near the end of your Bibles, uh, right before the Revelation. Uh, it's really easy to miss because, you know, it's, it's a book a page at, at this section of the Bible. Um, but it's in there, so, so go ahead and find it. Uh, we'll be in Jude chapter 1. It's the only chapter. Um, and it's a letter to a church that has a fight on its hands that at best... It's a fight that that church doesn't know about, and at worst, it's a fight that it just won't acknowledge. It's, the, the letter is really, it's a summons to battle. It's a set of marching orders, and I think as we study it together today, we may see what we as Christians, as the church, should be willing to fight about. So let's, let's read this together. The epistle of Judah, follow with me. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like us unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That is a beautiful word from God. And it didn't take long either. You guys just read an entire book of the Bible. Look at you, you gold star Christians. (laughs) Um, There is a sense in the world today. Walk walk with me on this, because this is is my my judgment, my instinct, my speculation. Uh, But there is a sense today, I feel, that the church spends too much time fighting about anything, at, at any time. That on the spectrum of fight or flight, uh, we're way over in come-at-me-bro territory. I'll fight you, I'll fight all of you, I don't care. Um, <laughs> that is the picture of us that the culture paints. And I would ignore that, because, you know, forget those guys. Um, <laughs> but it's not just an outside opinion. Um, there are a growing number of people within the, the Bible-believing, Christ-loving church that have, have looked back at how the previous generations have fought the doctrinal war, the cultural war, and haven't liked all of what they've seen. Uh, Quarrelsomeness, pettiness, savagery and the condemnation of select sins. Um, And uh, when we open the Sunday Bulletin every week to find out what we're boycotting that particular week, uh, a harshness, a hardness, something above and beyond the offense of the gospel itself, an additional man-made stumbling block of arrogance and antagonism. That's the feeling. And maybe you feel that way. I, I, I don't know. It's, and I suspect it's very hard to want to fight more if that is how you feel. Because you've seen the cost of the scorched earth policy of cultural engagement. Uh, some, some of us have unbelieving friends who, who are scarred and burnt and who point to that sort of thing as the reason they don't believe. Um, and it's hard to see the value in more fighting. And uh, again, I'm not the end-all, be-all weatherbane of our, of our culture, of our churches. I, I could be mistaken on that. But that's what I see, and that's what I read, and that's what I hear when I'm talking to people. Um, so what do we do with that? Many believers today are very hesitant to call anyone out on anything. And yet it remains true that some things are worth fighting over. Now Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't introduce himself that way. He says, I am a servant to Jesus. I am a slave of Jesus. Michael owns Greek in this building, but doulos. Is that that the right pronunciation? Okay. (laughs) Uh, He identifies himself as the brother of James, one of Jesus' other half-brothers, the the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he's like, hey, I'm James' brother. I'm Jesus' servant. And, uh, and he's not like, you know, hey, listen up, I'm, I'm God's kid's brother. Um, 
actually one of the one of the great blessings of, of um, associating with Tim Brown is that I've gleaned many important theological insights from him, not the least of which is how difficult would it have been being Jesus' younger brother? You know, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> what would Jesus do? Um, it's a tough act to follow. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so it's, it's likely that from what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, Jude was married, that he was a traveling missionary, traveled with his wife. Uh, and so a lot of people think he wrote this letter to one of the churches he planted. Uh, others sort of see this letter as like sort of a church-wide missive, attention, all Christians pay heed. Um, I'm a little less convinced by that argument, but this is just all reasoned inference. Um, and in any case, the letter was kept, the letter was given to other churches, so on some level, the people who got it felt that everybody needed to hear this, and I don't think that's really changed. So what does Jude say here in our letter? Um, if I were to boil it down for us, it's this. We must contend for the faith because the gospel is worth fighting over. Who Jesus is, what he's done, who we are in him, that is worth making people mad over. If there is no name under heaven other than the name of Jesus by which men must be saved, then this is an issue of eternal life and death. The health and holiness of the church rises and falls with its adherence to the gospel of Christ, and it is worth the battle. That's what Jude says here, and I am convinced it is a message no less urgent today than it was uh, when the ink was still fresh on these words. So we must contend for the faith because the gospel is worth fighting over. I want to look at Jude's letter closely with you by asking the text three different questions. Um, uh, questions in the answering of which I hope will come... Uh, help us come to a, a greater understanding of the passage and its relevance for us. So let's just dive right in. First question, um, are there among us in this church, in the church, false teachers, fake Christians? Are we infiltrated? Is this actually a thing? Um, and if this is an unpleasant thought for you, a little, a little inquisition-y, like, whoa, man, uh, that got real too quickly. Um, if, because... I think a lot of us would rather be rejoicing in the, the glorious gospel of grace that we have received. We would rather be celebrating what Christ has done for us. Um, if you'd rather be building people up than dividing the church by playing another round of Hunt the Heretic, uh, then you're in good company because that's how Jude feels. He, he does his letter intro. He greets them. And verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Um, so, so, so don't think you're exempt from this letter because your initial thought isn't, oh gosh, I really want to fight. Uh, that's, that's not why Jude's here either. He doesn't want to, he needs to. The gospel is worth fighting over. He doesn't want to be writing this letter any more than many of us may want to be reading it. So why? What, what, what happened? Um, he doesn't leave us in suspense for very long. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in on notice who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God and the sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's the first question answered. That was quick. Um, I promise there'll be a little bit more buildup on the others. Um, but that's the thing. Okay. Uh, hey, Jude, are there heretics in the church? Yes. Um, but that's that church, right? I mean, what does this mean to us? Sorry you've got heretics, Jude. Maybe you should have sprayed for that or whatever it is you do. Um, but 
I think to really appreciate this, we need to read it in the context of the, of the fuller New Testament witness. So I'm just going to, I'm going to just drop some scripture on you rapid fire. Matthew 7, Jesus is talking to the disciples and in this future tense way, he warns them that one day these kinds of people will come. Beware of false prophets, he says. It's a very iconic passage. You might, might be remembering this. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Peter's like, no, Jesus. <laughs> so every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And that's not the only time Jesus uh, talks about this thing, but it's, again, probably one of the more iconic passages that we remember. Uh, Paul, later, speaking about a heresy gripping the church in Colossae, Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Or 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's 1 Timothy 4. Maybe things are better by 2 Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. And maybe this is just Paul's fixation. 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. 2 John 1. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Peter. 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people. He's speaking of ancient Israel. This has been a problem for a while. Uh, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many who follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. I could go on. There are more. Um, are you sensing a pattern here? They're coming, they're coming, they're coming, and Jude says they're here. You've seen that scary movie, right? You get a call, there's heavy breathing and bad theology on the other side, and you call the doctrine police, and they're like, we've traced it. The heresy is coming from inside the house. Um, and you turn around, and there's a flash of lightning, and Benny Hinn is standing behind you with his magic <laughs> suit jacket raised high, and he brings it down and slays you in the spirit, and you wake up the next morning, and all your money's gone. Um, <laughs> Anyway, are there false teachers in the church? I don't know. Do you believe the Bible? Because it says there will be. This isn't surprising God. I think that's what that part in verse 4 is talking about when he says they were designated for this condemnation long ago. God knew. Uh, there's a psalm. I, I wish I had the foresight to, to, to cite it chapter and verse, but basically God's appointed everything, even the day of trouble. Um... God's not surprised. If we are all familiar with our Bibles, neither should we be. And Jude essentially says that in verses 17 and 18 of this, this passage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So we, we cannot pretend this issue away. It's not fun, but this is a promised and scripturally well-attested part of Christian life. 
Your communities will be the target of spies, enemy agents, ravenous wolves. We cannot pretend this is a first century only problem. Uh, even a cursory scan of history tells a pretty sordid tale of once noble institutions being rotted from the inside out, their constituent churches twisted into puppets that fear men rather than God. Now, I am, I am not going to go Senator Joe McCarthy on us all today. I do not have in my pocket a, a list of all the, uh, all the secret unregenerate fiends who have infiltrated the uh, river church. Uh, by the grace of God, I hope and I believe that I stand in a room of faithful believers covenanted together in service to Christ. So I, I'm, I don't have any of you secretly in mind with this message, and I'm making eyes, right? <laughs> you know? um, but the assumption that I could not be wrong in that estimation or that that could never change, those are, are merely the first steps on a road that ends with our vibrant gospel witness blunted until we too are one more decaying, irrelevant social club where the message is always positive and no one has to sit through a sermon on Jude, which uh, may or may not be a bad thing, depending on how today goes. But, so, uh, in addition to actually just being obedient to scripture, this is one of the reasons why we have the church discipline policies we do here at the River Church. Um, your pastor, Michael, uh, the under-shepherd in service to the good shepherd that God has given us, takes his role as protector of this congregation seriously, and your elders do as well. Um, and I urge you to return that favor. Follow your leaders in the church as they follow Christ. Obey your leaders in the church as they obey Christ. And should anyone attempt to lead you somewhere that the word of God does not allow, take your role as a member of this church seriously and with patience and humility contend for the faith and holiness of this body. That is something I urge you to consider. But, but let's keep moving. Our second question who are these people? That's our second question. They're in the church. Okay, I accept that. I don't like it, but there it is. Who are they? Are we these people? Um, Jude sets up a dichotomy, an either-or, a, a, a this-that. He's writing to those beloved by God, called by him, kept by and for Jesus Christ. That's verse 2, and he's writing to them about certain persons. Uh, they're here in the church calling themselves Christians, setting themselves up as leaders and teachers. They look like you, they talk like you, but they are not like you. Uh, I think especially to the more academically minded among us, the first response to this is, okay, they're heretics, what do they believe? What bad doctrine are they teaching? Let's catalog them, let's classify them, let's build them a heretic box and put them in it so no one's confused about who's beloved by God and who's certain persons. Um, that's usually the way we kind of approach these things. Um, and this is one of the great and scholarly and distinguished and lengthy wastes of time in the study of Jude. And, and that might sound kind of harsh, but I read like 10 commentaries to prepare for this message. Um, this 25-verse book. <laughs> and as I read Jude, as I read the commentaries, as I read Jude again... I just was struck by how Jude wasn't exactly interested necessarily in exactly the same things that we were interested in. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at what he tells us. He says, ungodly people. Who are they ungodly people? People who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. People who deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. Yet somehow they've also crept in secretly. Am I the only one who sees a problem with, with people denying Christ as Lord, but somehow flying under the doctrinal radar? Like, how bad were they at theology in Jude's church? 
And again, I think this is a situation where a broader scriptural context helps. Um, that, that back in Matthew 7, that, that part we read, immediately after that, immediately after Jesus is warning them about wolves and sheath clothing, he adds, not anyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, the letter to Titus says exactly the same thing, just e- even more directly. Speaking about false teachers, Paul writes in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So yeah, there were doctrinal issues in play here, absolutely, but Jude points at their lives. How did they sneak in unnoticed? Well, with their lips, they proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord, and with their lives, they denied him completely. That is what Jesus was getting at, talking about good and bad fruit. So everyone who's academically inclined, who's reading this letter, is asking Jude, what did these people believe? Tell us about their heresy. We want to compile it into the big book of heresies. And Jude just doesn't, really. There are hints, and I'll I'll mention them as we go, but it's not his focus. We're waiting for Jude to refute their doctrinal positions, and instead he denounces their rootless immorality. We ask Jude what they believe, and he tells us what they are. Godless, unregenerate people who twisted the doctrine of grace to justify their weird sex stuff. That is the the plainest way I can put it. People whose lived testimony denied that the cross had any power to save, denied that they were servants and Christ was their master, a a position which, incidentally, the Lord's own brother was not too humble to consider his own. The wolves in the midst of the church are rarely nice or incompetent enough to deny Christ for us out loud. Now, Jude is already a short letter, and it could have been even shorter, but he takes the time to paint us a picture. He wants us to see these certain purses in, in, in technicolor so that when they sneak in, we will recognize them. Who are these people? Jude pulls out his Old Testament and his mass market paperback of the Apocrypha at one point um, and starts painting a picture. So, I mean, verses 5 through 7, they're like the people of Israel. You read about Numbers 14, who delivered by God but rebelled against him anyway and died in the wilderness for their unbelief. They're like the angels, most likely Jude's thinking about Genesis 6 here, that left their proper role and function, rebelled against God, and who are now chained in darkness, awaiting the day of God's final judgment. They're like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 whose abominable evil and rebellion against God and nature was met with a fiery judgment so spectacular that it became the Israelites' go-to example of, dang, God gonna kill you. Uh, Are you sensing some themes here? In verse 8, Jude says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Um, Now, if it weren't for that last item, that that blaspheming the glorious ones, this would be the most generic description of a heretic ever. Because what does that say? These are people who won't submit to actual biblical doctrine, and so tell people God told them in a dream they could totally do whatever weird sexual stuff they wanted to. Okay, so every cult ever. Um, Fortunately, the heretics in Jude are saved from complete mediocrity by also blaspheming angels. Um, 
And this point is confusing. It's a little vague. Fortunately, Jude gives us a little bit more background info by, by telling us this apocryphal story to illustrate the point. The, the takeaway of which is that these people are completely lacking in humility. They, they claim knowledge they don't have. They mock things they don't understand. And twist of irony, the things that they do understand, the things they do and feel and want instinctively are the very things that will see them destroyed. But Jude's not done. Three more examples. They're like Cain, the envy-ridden murderer. Balaam, the greedy prophet for hire. Korah, the rebel Levite who was blessed to serve at God's tabernacle, but that wasn't good enough for him, and who rebelled against the authority God had put in his life and led many to their death as he did so. Woe to them, Jude says. That's why we're not getting a point-by-point refutation of their heretical positions, by the way, because we're not reading a book by a systematic theologian. We're reading something much closer to an oracle from a prophet of God. Woe to them. Who are they? Woe to them. They are those who will be judged. He describes them as hidden rocks under the water, which the faith of many can and will be shipwrecked on, hiding inside the church without fear, dangerous. Waterless clouds which bring no rain, useless. Stars that move and which you can't navigate by, useless. A tree that at harvest time has no fruit on it is dead twice over and turned sideways. The most useless thing I can envision. If you are counting on any of those things to help you to deliver on what they promised, you're in deep trouble. Shepherds who destroy the flock they are entrusted to in order to care for themselves. Treacherous. Jude is not pulling punches here. Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Who are they? Look at the fruit. God does, and he'll judge. John the Baptist prophesied, saying, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what do we do with all that? I think more than anything, we need to see how deadly serious this issue is. Are they here? Yes. Who are they? Poison in your veins. Cancer in your body. An enemy more dangerous than any other because they are inside your gates. Look at those examples Jude uses. Are any of those things small potatoes as far as God is concerned? And he hammers this over and over. God takes what they are doing very seriously, will we? Which really leads us into that third question. What then must we do? If this is a real and significant problem that is happening, what must the faithful in the church do? Contend, fight, okay, how? And really it all comes back to the gospel. At the end of this denunciation of these false teachers, these agents of the enemy, these unregenerate, unrepentant workers of sin who are following their feelings and their instincts and their dreams straight into the maw of judgment, surrounded by and yet willfully untouched by the transformative power of the gospel, Jude says, that's not who you are. You are the beloved of God. And he instructs God's people to both inward and outward response. Inwardly, he says, you who are kept by God, called by God, stay there. Stay in the love of God. Don't grow disheartened in the face of this madness. God will judge. You build one another up in the faith, he says. Pray together in the Holy Spirit. Wait for the coming mercy of Jesus. The day of the Lord will be judgment for them, but vindication and salvation for you. This is important. This is worth fighting over. But it doesn't shake the kingdom to which you belong. And I think that's something that those of us who are more prone to fighting 
especially need to meditate on. Because it can feel like the truth is a precious and fragile thing forever posed on the edge of a knife. A flickering candle that's, that's in our charge that is forever buffeted by winds of trickery and human evil. We're always one tragedy away from the end of the world, one compromise away from a thousand years of darkness. That's how it can feel. It's a, it's a frantic and catastrophe-centered mindset. And to some extent, yeah, they're right. Greasy, glory-seeking charlatans will sneak in and split our congregations. I don't like it, but they will. It happens. Churches will shamefully stand silent in the face of the politically fashionable evils of the day. Mighty and faithful denominations will fall like kingdoms taken by barbarian hordes, and men in service to the very demons of hell will wear the skin of those once great institutions and utter great and terrible blasphemies while calling it the gospel. What then will you say? The Lord rebuke you. Whether it was the, the Archangel Michael in Jude's story or, or the Lord himself in Zechariah 3, that is how the forces of heaven have responded to the disputations of the accuser. Jesus, the promised branch of David, has conquered. In a single day on the cross, your iniquity was removed. The rock of your salvation holds. Bad things will happen. Men and individual churches will fail, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. So Jude says, build one another up in the faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Take a breath and wait. Wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life. It is good to want to contend for the faith. God commends zeal. So stay on mission. And one of the most pointless things you could do is actually fight a battle that's already been won. Jesus saved the world at the cross already. That is not your job. You cannot do that. You don't need to do that. Inwardly, rest and know that you are called, kept, and loved. And to those among us who, who hold no particular appetite for conflict who struggle to find any value in opening old wounds and rehashing old arguments, know that the gospel remains worth fighting over. We must contend for the faith. Because there is an outward component that we are called to exercise from that place of inward peace that we receive being kept in the love of God. How do we do that? Jude gives us three more things. I don't know if, if you study the book, Jude loves his threes. It's really interesting. That's a technical thing, though. Uh, first thing, so he gives us these three things, and he, and he does it in escalating levels of seriousness. He says, okay, contend for the faith. How? First, have mercy on those who doubt. Genuine believers, people who love God and whom God loves, can and will be impacted by these false teachers. Your grandmother will post things on Facebook whose theology will place your face firmly within your palms. Um, <laughs> It's just going to happen. Uh, people will come to our churches with, a, with a, an understanding and, and beliefs and, and, and just baggage where they haven't completely integrated their lives with the gospel yet. Um, show them mercy. They are men and women in God's image and whom the Son of God has died for. If you, if you only have to take away one thing from today, take that. I am, I'm not here to stir up an angry mob. Um, I just want to share with you the passion that Jude had for the health and holiness of God's people and God's church. 
Where there is poor theology, let's teach. Patiently, lovingly, where there is sin, let us confess our own and seek to restore one another with repentance and the very mercy that God in Christ has shown us. The second thing Jude instructs for those in the grip of these lies, any lie, any idle human speculation raised up against the knowledge of God, against any false gospel, he says, contend for the faith. And we do so by seeking after those people. Those people ensnared by those lies and we seek to save them as we ourselves were saved. We go after them, Jude puts it, as if we were snatching them from a fire. Because rest assured, that is what is happening. We respond to that with the seeking and saving gospel of Christ. And to the worst cases, those completely in the thrall of these teachers, the teachers themselves, we're advised to recognize the danger they represent, to fear the pollution that they bring into the body. And this too is a mercy. Incidentally, that's how Jude describes it. Because in so doing, we will not fall into the error of those many false prophets who proclaimed peace when there was none. We do not do anyone any favors by saying they are good with God when they still stand under his judgment. Read those examples Jude gives us. We, Jesus saves. And this is good news. And this gospel is indeed worth fighting over. I, I think it only right to end the, uh, the same way Jude did. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you empty, broken, in ragged garments. And in Christ you have, you have made us new. And through no, no greatness of our own, but unmerited grace. Apart from your forgiveness, we are nothing. And as, so we value what we have received. We do not fight for it because, because our pride matters and our ego matters and we're, we're offended as we are attacked and maligned and we will be. You've warned us of this. We contend for the faith because we value what you have done for us. Because we seek it for, for others, the people we love, the people you love, God. Let us value the gospel of Christ so greatly, so highly, that we will not suffer to see it twisted. We will not suffer to see it maligned or blasphemed. God, may we live lives of holiness and righteousness because we love you, because we wish to live a life that brings you glory, because we wish to, we wish to be lights in the world as well. God, we thank you. Give us humility. Give us grace. Give us mercy for one another. Help us to fight less when we need to and fight more when we need to. Help us to keep those divine appointments. God, we love you. In the great and glorious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.